The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week we have an exclusive interview with Marina Abramovich. What's the future of performance in the post-pandemic art world? Also this week, as lockdown steadily eases in Germany, I asked Catherine Hickley, our correspondent in Berlin, how it feels to step foot in a museum again. And in the latest in our Lonely Works series, the painter Ian Davenport tells us why he's made a new body of work inspired by Pierre Bonnard's Nude in the Bath. But before all that, a reminder that you can sign up for the Art Newspaper's free daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and the newsletter link's at the top right of the homepage. Now, it was announced last week, somewhat inevitably, that Marina Abramovich's long-awaited retrospective at the Royal Academy in London, due to open in September, will be postponed until next year. Abramovich is, of course, one of the pioneers of performance art, which has gained unprecedented art world prominence in recent years. But at a moment when social distancing is universal, performance seems fraught with difficulties in the post-Covid-19 era. Or does it? Well, let's see what she thinks. Abramovich has been travelling since the start of the year and has been in lockdown in Austria. When we spoke, she was hoping to travel back to her home in New York in the coming days. I spoke to her about what the current crisis means for the art form that she's done more than most to bring into the mainstream. I began by asking if isolation had disrupted her working life or if it was already part and parcel of her daily practice. To completely disappoint you, I didn't disturb my life at all. I actually, you know, I live I live like a modern nomad. I travel from place to place. I'm taking I've been, been taking, you know, the the every hotel room as my own on uh, on place. And because I really body is actually my only place that I relate to. And uh, in every circumstances I work and most of the time I work in isolation. So to me these circumstances really didn't change my way of living. The only thing that changes is a relational communication with the people because now is a social distance, is everything become more through the the media and technology. But it's it's not so bad at all. You can also send telepathic messages to your friends. But also, I mean, your work anyway has always pushed and pulled between extremes of sort of collaboration and groups and communities and isolation. That's some, those are two extremes that you've always pushed at, right? The really which is problem right now that the people live in fear and the people love to, to, to organise their life and to know everything what they're going to from now till, till they die. And this is not possible. This is such an uncertain situation. How long is it going to be to take in this uh, close situation and no possibility to travel is also uncertain. But I love uncertainty. I love the idea that people should really learn to live here and now and just think about the the present time as the only actually reality we have because we always think that we have other realities we always think that we have other futures but you know i always say to to myself what if an asteroid just fall out of the sky and we are dead you know in next in next few minutes the only thing that is certain is now do you feel that the current climate can does it make you concentrate on the exact events of today these these news events or do you find that you are escaping into a different realm more and I I suppose what I mean is in terms of how you're thinking about making work is 
the coronavirus itself affecting the way that you work or are you in a way escaping into work? You know, it really doesn't affect my work directly. You know, it's very, it's, it's, it's actually, I always think it's very dangerous for artists that in immediate events uh, somehow in the news of today, you know, can change the work or the way they think because in the same time, if this happened, this is like, you know, what next next day, the coronavirus is all news and you work be, kind of lose this possibility of being being uh, you know the the visionary uh, you know when it was the war in yugoslavia in balkan war it took me so long to create the work to relate to that feeling of shame which i had and i made a piece called balkan baroque when i'm washing the bones but it took me a long time to to really relate to the situation and even then i didn't want to make the piece who directly relate to the war in yugoslavia i want to make the piece who transcended the feeling of the war and that the image that I create can be used anytime, anywhere. So that to create something which is which is really the the, the general context, you know, that anytime there's somebody somewhere killing, we can use this image. Uh, so the same with coronavirus, you know, if we immediately directly work on this, somehow it's like you're recycling daily news. And I don't think R should be about that. R should really be disturbing, should ask the questions, should, you know, the predict the future and all these things. I, I also mentioned that in the time of, of the war, Second World War, you know, when everybody was painting the disasters of the war, Matisse was painting flowers. And this is really great response because, you know, it's not about putting our spirit down and look at the situation, how many times, how many people die in America, how many people die worldwide, and you so, so depressive and repetitive. It's more about question, you know, how to lift human spirit. Indeed. I'm, I'm really interested in your ritual. We talked a bit about how you are sort of nomadic, but I know from talking to Chrissy Isles at the Whitney Museum that you adhere to certain rituals when you're making a show and you're thinking about um, planning performances and all that kind of stuff. Are you able to do that at now? While you're, are you still sticking to these sort of very careful rituals as you as you go about life in in, in lockdown? First of all, performance is not possible in this period of time because performance need audience it means direct contact with the audience because the audience and performer complete the work. Now, because social distances, we can't do that. But at the same time, I've been working all the time, you know, in Stadt Opera in Munich, creating the new work called Seven Deaths of Maria Callas, and where we actually have the, or just me on the stage, so it was okay. <laughs> I was not other people, and we didn't have the full orchestra to rehearse. We had just one pianist, which was also just one person with a mask. But so we really looking at the circumstances, how we can work in any condition. That's interesting. Let's talk about performance, because obviously one of the great things of recent years, when one thinks about the tanks that take modern, the Whitney's new performance spaces... Is is that that performance has at last entered the museum in a mean, really meaningful way? That it is absolutely at the top of the the media, if you like, in museums. And suddenly we're in this situation where people being close to each other, people being in large groups, is unhealthy. I'm wondering what you think about how performance can emerge from this, and how, whether whether you think it will take a lot of time for performance to sort of get back to that, that extreme prominent position that it had achieved after all these years. You know, 
I feel that I'm really responsible that performance became mainstream art because I'm doing this over 50 years and I never give yes. up. So, that, that, so this is like my baby we are talking about. And I really think the coronavirus is not going to be something that will stay forever. So there will be time again that coronavirus will be passed and there will be vaccination and we can have the normal performance events. In the meantime, I think this whole thing about the argumented reality would could be solution because in a argumented reality, you can capture the performer energy and you have it in his new living room, just all for you, which is really something that I just created with a timber drum production called The Life. And uh, and I think that's one possibility in wait, waiting for the really direct contact that we really need, the performers need when once the coronavirus is passed. Let's talk about your Royal Academy exhibition. Obviously, it was announced this week that the exhibition, sadly, has had to be postponed. It, it was inevitable it, it would have to be. But I'm really interested still to talk about this this show. Obviously, it's, shows like that are planned over many years. But does, does what's happening now make you think about ch- making changes to that show? Do you think about... Um, different works gaining new currency and maybe needing to be part of it now? You know, I work on this show since two, two years and I finished almost 80% of the show. We are all about, we was just about to finish the catalogue. We have all the writers for the catalogue ready and text was ready when coronavirus happened. And first of all, I was so grateful that the show was not cancelled because Cezanne's show in Royal Academy was cancelled at all, you know, completely. So in that case, I am really happy that that, that uh, the show is still on is going to be next Next year, the the one thing that's going to be changed in the show is my homage to Ulay because he passed passed just in the beginning of coronavirus situation that you could not even have proper funeral because it was not allowed to. That will be really the 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 space which we will have our joint work, which I'm going to present in Royal Academy some highlight pieces on our 12 years collaboration. We will have the the one homage to him. That's the that's the new circumstances what happened just uh, you know recently, and uh, and there I don't know as as I said I don't like to 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 really um, deal with with the coronavirus and make immediately work of art I literally don't have any idea and no inspiration at all it's not it's, the coronavirus is not exactly sexy thing to work with. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then, and then, what I really think is, uh, it's you know, the title of the show is a kind of prediction of the future because the title of the show is called Afterlife. <laughs> so that already there have some kind of prediction of what can happen afterlife. Indeed, and afterlife also, of course, relates to this idea of legacy and the idea of the legacy of performance, and it's something which has been debated in the performance world so, almost since since you started making work, right? So, you know, you documented works in photographs and on film, for instance. Other other artists would not do that, and it seems to me that that was a, a very important decision to make because those works do have a legacy they are in museum collections and everybody can appreciate them today but it's, it's also really important to the stirrings of these ideas of re-performance and of course you you did a trailblazing element of that with the seven easy pieces at the Guggenheim so tell me a bit about legacy and how you feel about your work continuing to exist 
you know, uh, even though you won't be re-performing them, but also into the future. You know, first of all, I was so lucky to have the my mother, who was a director of the Museum of Art and Revolution, who was a difficult character in my life. But at the same time, she really was absolutely fanatic about documentation and to document everything. So I somehow, from the very early life, I learned this. I document every little drawing I made on napkin or whatever the piece of paper I had at the time. So and the, every exhibition, she she also document herself. In own way. So I had documentation of everything I'd done in my life, every letter I received. It's just kind of incredible <laughs> to see that. And not only that, that I have documents, I d- digitalized them and I'm organized. But then it was very important that my teaching, you know, I have 25 years of teaching career in different countries around the world. I teach in Paris, Bazaar, I teach in Berlin, I teach in Hamburg, Braunschweig, I teach in, China, in, 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 uh, in Japan, in Kitakushu, and so on and so on and do lots of workshops. And then I create really group of young artists around me to teach them uh, through the the, the, the something, the Abramovich method, which I call cleaning the house workshop, to teach them how to do their own work, a long durational work of art. And then after the, the artist is present, I understood that the public is so interesting, not to just to be, uh, to look at something, public was so interested to be part of experience. So I create also the, the Abramovich method for the public, you know, to go through the certain exercises in order to be able to see something incredibly focused and, and, and concentrated, which is long duration performance. In long duration performances, so it's not just five hours or three hours, but can go for months and months, eight hours a day. Maybe sometimes nothing happened, but just light past the room. But you have to check your breathing, your concentration of the details are and so on. So so that is preparation of the public and performer to, to exhibit this. So this now we have Institute, Marina Abramovich Institute of Performance Art, who include legacy of the historical performance works that I have and donate to Institute, the, the, the Abramovich method is for the public, uh, clean the house for the young artists and, uh, and, part, and working with young artists to actually facilitate them to make the work of art. We had, a, right now, uh, we had a, in, in, in Sabanachi Museum in, in, in Istanbul, very big uh, event. It was 54,000 people already, but then coronavirus stopped it. So we actually have to stop the, the show and hoping to opening in September. But legacy is extremely important for me because legacy is how you can, you know, when once you're not there, you, you have to see, you know, what your life is for, what actually achievement you made. And if I think backwards, for me, it was the first thing to put performance on the mainstream art, to invent re-performance, the, 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 the historical pieces can be re-performed, with a, very, uh, you know, following the certain rules and uh, long duration of performance art and preserving legacy. And of course, one of the aspects of that is that certain of your works were so extreme that, that you cannot put your the re-performers in the position to re-perform them. I wonder how that feels as an artist. Does it, does it make you reflect on how much danger you put yourself in? Yeah, the, you know, the danger is all my own risk because it's my own body and I can do whatever fuck I want with my body. But the, but I will never give permission, <laughs> I will never give permission to any young artist to perform things that put themselves in danger. I have plenty of pieces that can be re-performed. Just recently for t- two times was re-performed the House with Ocean View, which is consists of 12 days without food and, and without, um, you know, the um, without food and, and being exposed to the public and without talking in the front of the public 
Brotherhood felt this. This is very deep uh, spiritual experience and doesn't really involve danger. And of course, that work's gained a, a new currency now, hasn't it? Because because it's so relevant to everybody's experience in isolation. Yes, and I've been asking for so many podcasts, and uh, you know the 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 different uh, advices. What we're going to do isolation? People are so afraid to be by themselves. People are so afraid of doing nothing. And I made a very long time a statement that doing nothing is the beginning of something, and that's a really deep philosophical truth. When you're really doing nothing, then something else happens. Your consciousness go deeper. Your 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 vision of the world, your transformation of the of the idea of time is different. Your questions about mortality, existence in this planet and why you're there for. There's, there are people that are afraid to do this, to, to really deep, start thinking deep down to this, these things. People just wanted to entertainment and they wanted to be with friends and they want to have a good time. But the good time is not exactly time for where you can really transform yourself. And this time, what we have is the time of transformation. And I really love the, the one Sufi sentence who said, divorce is the best. And that's what is now we are, we are living this time. Is that what you meant in that message you recorded to Italy, where you said that human consciousness needed to change? Yeah, I have a very strong relation to Italy and I love Italian people and Italian people love me and I, because they are so emotional and so, you know, <laughs> over the top and we, we have this emotional connection. And when I th- th- yes, it's all about changes of consciousness. The only way that we can change the world is individually to change ourselves. That's the, just simply as this because basically we always criticize the other systems. We always criticize the other people doing this or doing that but we never look to ourselves the first thing we have to make first step and this is really your own personal transformation and and how about the art world itself i mean obviously the art world had reached certain extremes with art fairs and all this kind of thing the market had become so dominant do you feel like there will be a, a big correction in the art market itself Thanks God that the, the, the art market is dominant, not dominant anymore. Thanks God. You know, there is a beautiful book uh, of um, the, the, the Patty Smith uh, and about Marperton and they're living together called Just the Kids. Did you read that? Yes, yeah. The extraordinary book, yeah. Talking about 70s, talking that artists was doing work because they, they had to do, because there was like the only way how to express themselves. And they would never even dream that the work would become commodity. They would sell the work and they will be rich out of that work. It didn't exist. If they were doing any other jobs, but they have to always go back and create because this was stronger than breathing. They have to live for work. At that time, is really talking about very pure, very innocent, and very, you know, the, the, the honest art. And then the art become huge commodity. And, you know, once when we, when we sell, uh, uh, I don't know, the Modigliani for $136 million, we, we are... Which is not even such a great painter, <laughs> but, you know, between us. You know, it's just the whole world is out of balance. It doesn't work anymore. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, we go back to the normal, back to the creativity, back to the pure purity, because there will not be any more the commodity, because the economy collapse. And what is very interesting about this situation is that the, the performance right, art, always disappear when, 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 the, when the economy is on the highest point. The performance art arrive when the economy collapsing, because it's like Phoenix getting burst from his own, own ashes, because performance 
performance doesn't include, doesn't need much money. You know, performance art is cheap. But then what is great about performance art is living form of art. It's a time-based art and it's extremely emotional when it's good. It can really change the viewer perception. Amen to that. And thank you so much for talking to us. I really was a pleasure talking to you. If you want to hear more about Marina Abramovich, do listen to my conversation about Ulai and Marina with Catherine Wood, the senior curator of international art at Tate Modern, who's a specialist in performance art. That was in early March, just after Ulai had died. The episode was called Remembering Ulai, and you can find that and all our previous episodes at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you normally listen to podcasts. Now, Germany is widely regarded as being among the countries that's responded best to the coronavirus pandemic, and in the last week it's begun easing lockdown, to the extent that some museums have opened their doors for the first time in weeks. Catherine Hickley, the art newspaper's correspondent in Germany, has visited one such institution, and she joined me on the line from Berlin to tell me about her experience. Catherine, before we get into the specifics about museums, can you give us a sense of the easing of the lockdown in general in Germany? Yes, it's been gradual in stages. Um, First of all, uh, shops were allowed to open, up small shops up to 800 square metres, which meant that art galleries could open again. And now we're sort of moving into the next phase of the the easing, um, which means that museums are being allowed to open and Larger shops will also be able to open. Restaurants and bars and cafes will be able to open next week. But it's happening in a gradual kind of way and not every state is doing this at the same time. So different states have been affected differently. So they are easing the lockdown according to their own needs. Um, And that's probably going to continue because it's expected that there will be further outbreaks in individual places. I mean, there's definitely going to be a second wave. That's certainly expected. Right. Which means that individual regions will be able to take action according to needs. And and tell me about, I mean, like, for instance, the num- the groupings of people that are being permitted. So are you allowed to meet people outside of your household yet? Ah, yes. Um, we have always been able- allowed to meet one other person from outside the household as long as you maintain the 1 metre 50 distance from them. Um, But in some states that's easing. I know, for example, that Saxony-Anhalt groups of five are now allowed. In Berlin that hasn't changed yet, so we're still supposed to only be meeting one other person. Right. Okay, so let's get on to this museum. So you have been to a museum, which is extraordinary. I just and it's in it's it's in Cottbus. Tell us about about first of all, how did it feel? I mean, you obviously hadn't been to a museum for many weeks, so how did it feel just to go back to a museum? It was great. I was so looking forward to it. It just felt like a slice of normal life again. Uh, I actually went the day before it reopened to meet the director, so that she could tell me what she was doing and take the time. Uh, without having the visitors there. Um, but it was it was particularly interesting in that she wanted to introduce elements of the whole pandemic discussion into the museum, which she's done at very short notice, and it, it was impressive to see how she's thinking about it. What kind of museum is it? I mean, can you give us a sense of its... Is it, is it, is it a Kunsthalle or does it have a collection? 
It's in Cockbus, which is 100 kilometres um, southeast of Berlin. It's near the Polish border. Um, it's a small city um, with um, a, an art museum. It's based in a former uh, diesel power plant and that was built in 1927. And it's a contemporary modern art museum with a very large collection of East German works, which is probably not very well known outside Germany. And it was a good reason to go and see, see it. Indeed. Now tell me about, about the very specific practical realities of visiting the museum. For instance, I was really intrigued to, to learn from your piece that, that they actually are instructing people in what 1.5 metres looks like, you know, uh, using specific devices to, to establish the social distancing. Yes, I mean, I think that was an idea of the director, which works quite well, because one metre fifty is actually a lot further than you think. And it certainly became very clear to me that it's much further than you could stay apart from anyone in a Berlin supermarket on a Saturday. Yeah. And it was, um, she has marked the the floor with one metre fifty and given people um, provided poles and ribbons so that visitors can stand on these markings on the floor with the poles and the ribbons and get a feel for the distance that they should be apart from each other when they're actually in the museum. Um, and she's also put in, installed a video in the foyer which examines ways in which artists have, 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 have looked at the question of how to stay protected in public in the past and there's all kinds of, of wacky things like a, a blow-up um, transparent mobile office that was um, invented by an, an Austrian architect and so on. So injecting a bit of humour into the whole proceedings. Well, exactly. A bit of humour, a bit of thinking outside the normal sort of parameters that we've uh, um, been thinking about this pandemic. And she's also very interested to examine the whole question of handshaking and what are we going to do if we can't shake hands anymore? I mean, handshaking is much more prevalent in Germany and particularly actually in East Germany than it is in the UK. People shake hands automatically when they meet you. It's a very hard thing to get out of the habit of doing, but I think it's going to be a long time before we, we start doing it again. So these are all interesting questions. They are indeed. What about things like, I mean, you know, uh, 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 hand sanitizer? Are, are, are the members of staff behind um, glass barriers and things like that? Yes, there have been a lot of practical changes and this is something that all German museums are having to do at the moment. So first of all, installing the kind of plexiglass shields that we've got used to in supermarkets and so on and then putting hand sanitizer at the door so that visitors can clean their hands when they come in. So the biggest um, logistical problem really is, is managing visitor flow and in the case of the Cottbus Museum, that's not really a, a problem. They normally have lots and lots of group tours and they're not going to have any for a long time. So they don't expect to, to be overwhelmed. It's a small city. Somewhere like Berlin, of course, where you have these huge museums usually overwhelmed with tourists, it is more of an issue. Um, so they are introducing um, tickets for time slots only. And that means that the the visitor numbers are very carefully controlled. So tell me which museums are have committed to dates or are already open across the rest of Germany then? Yes, um, <laughs> that's a big question because it's, it's quite complicated, quite difficult to keep on top of this. <laughs> but in Berlin, <laughs> um, we know that the, the Pergamon and the Alte Nationalgalerie 
on Museum Island are opening soon, this week, I think, or next week. Uh, next week it is. And then also the Gemälde Galerie at the Kultur Forum is opening. The Martin Gropius Bau has also given a date for opening. But other museums, they haven't yet named a date. And one of the examples is the James Simon Gallery on Museum Island. They haven't given us a date for when that's going to be reopened. It's a new kind of foyer, uh, an entrance area for all of the Berlin museums. And the problem with that, according to Hermann Patzinger, who's the president of the Stiftung Preußische Kultur, which is the organisation that manages all the Berlin museums, is that there are so many entrance points into the museum and you don't need a ticket and uh, so you can't they can't really control the visitor flow and that means they don't feel that it's safe to open it at the moment and in Dresden for example they have um, reopened the Semperbau which was just newly reopened in in March after after a um, a big sort of refitting of the museum so um, that has reopened and they can manage the visitor flow there easily but other museums, such as the Residential Palace in Dresden, which is very large and home to lots of different museums, like the Costumes and the Green Vault and so on, has not opened yet because it's much more complicated. And then in other states, like in Munich, um, the museums have not opened at all yet because Bavaria was one of the worst hit by the pandemic and I think it's going to take a little bit longer for the lockdown to ease there. The government in Bavaria is one of the strictest on the lockdown. So I hope that gives you an idea that it's all very patchwork and it's not going to happen all at once. No, it does. And also uh, what was interesting in what you're saying is, and it made me think about museums in London, for instance. I mean, Tate Modern has so many entrances. You can imagine the difficulty in managing that visitor flow. But it's interesting to see that um, you, in, in your piece, you say that some museums are opening certain sections of the museum, like a modern extension, for instance. Yes, that's right. Like the Deutsches Historisches Museum, the German History Museum in Berlin has opened one modern extension, the Pei extension, which is hosting an exhibition of um, Hannah Arendt. And um, it's obviously an important exhibition that's going to be of interest to a lot of people, a lot of Berliners as well. So that's one which will be open with tickets available, online tickets, for a limited uh, time slot. But the main German historical museum is not opened yet, and that's a huge museum, and that's obviously a lot more complicated to manage. The other issue, of course, is that with these kind of very big museums that usually attract a lot of tourists, there are no tourists, there are absolutely no tourists. And yet the cost of opening at the moment in this situation in the pandemic is much higher because you need additional staff to manage visitor flow, to make sure that rooms are not getting overcrowded and all of this kind of thing. So there's an economic issue. I mean, they all charge entrance, unlike the museums in the UK. They generate income from tickets and admissions. And if there is no visitors from out of town, no tourists whatsoever, then that's a huge loss. Is that where this idea of the cultural infrastructure fund comes in? In, in other words, that the, the, the government will have to supplement museums for the loss of income and the additional security, etc.? That's right. I mean, one should note that the cultural infrastructure fund that's under discussion, under negotiation at the moment, is not just for museums. And if museums have been hard hit by this, then just imagine how much worse for 
theatres and opera houses and concert halls Absolutely, and so on. Yeah. So it's for all of these, um, or, and it's 500 million euros is what the Association of the Cultural Industries has asked for. We'll see what comes out of it. But I should imagine that um, regional governments and the federal government will all feel under pressure to help the museums and to boost their budget at this point. I mean, one of the interesting things about all this is, of course, that Germany is being held up as, as, as having responded to the coronavirus in the most exemplary way in in Europe, certainly. And... Um, it, it it makes me think that there must be a lot of eyes, museum directors' eyes on Germany at the moment, looking at how they're doing things. Because if they've responded to the general crisis so well, maybe that's what's going to happen with museums too. So there must be so much attention on what German museums are doing right now. Yes, I think that must be right. I can only imagine that museums around the world are looking to see how this unfolds and what needs to be taken into consideration. I think one of the things about Germany in a, in the pandemic, one of the advantages, in a way, um, is this regional structure. So it's a federal structure, and that the states can make their own decisions, and then backtrack if they need to. And I think that will, you know, play out. Um, everyone is certainly expecting a second wave, another outbreak. So there may mm-hmm. well be backtracking on this. Now, it's interesting that you said that museums in Munich aren't open because actually the first auction happened, but it was in Munich. So tell me about that. Yes, that's right. So the Neumeister Auction House in Munich uh, held an auction last night, the first live auction in Germany. It was obviously very limited in, in numbers because the law, the rules that apply to retailers also applied to the auction house which meant that you have to keep a certain distance between shoppers. And obviously that's complex in an auction where everyone needs to be there at the same time. So there were only 20 people there in in person, but there were a lot of bidders online as well, of course. And they, the company actually says that it's managed to double its online business during the pandemic um, and that there were bidders from Italy, Spain, Belgium, the UK, Poland, Russia, etc., and the the main lot, of course, was this painting by Karl Spitzweg, Justitia, which has a very interesting background. Uh, it was looted, well, it was sold under duress during the Nazi era by a Jewish businessman and then wound up in successive German presidents' offices before being um, identified as a work that should be restituted and it was finally returned to the heirs last last year and it fetched 550,000 euros at auction which was kind of in line with the estimates that was the hammer price so in general in the art market then are commercial galleries now sort of basically following the same sort of principles as, as museums you know opening um carefully and with restrictions in place yes you have to wear masks in shops. And of course, that's something that most museums are imposing as well, that all visitors will have to wear masks. I think um, one of the concerns with both probably is the amount of time that people spend looking at art. It's perhaps a bit longer than if you're just zipping in and out for groceries. And of course, that mean could mean extra exposure. So that's something that has to be thought about. And yeah, masks are obligatory for sure. And I bet you must be really keen to 
finally go to a museum in Berlin again and now that they're reopening that that's that's now something that you can look forward to. Yes I've been lining up all the exhibitions that I want to see. I'm very keen to see the Hannah Arendt exhibition at the Deutsches Historisches Museum but there's also an exhibition in Leipzig that I'm very keen to see and that's the um uh, Norbert Wagenbrett who is a East German painter has an exhibition there and I've been talking to him about his show of course he's been waiting for weeks for it to be open so he's delighted that it finally has um, and there's also an exhibition of Max Klinger in Leipzig that I haven't yet seen and that's going to be reopened so lots of things planned It's so nice to have some positive thoughts so yes it's careful but at last art is being made available to us again Catherine thanks so much for talking to us thank you Ben you can keep up to date as Germany's lockdown eases by following Catherine's reports online at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS you can find that at the app store coming up Ian Davenport tells us about his infatuation with a work by Pierre Bonnard But first, here are some of the top stories on the art newspaper's website this week. The former gold bullion trader and art collector James Stunt has been charged with money laundering and forgery following an investigation by West Yorkshire Police, according to the UK's Crown Prosecution Service. A spokesman for the CPS declined to give any further details of the charges, but Annie Shaw writes that a statement from Stunt's solicitors said that he strenuously denies any criminality and will be contesting all charges. They added that the forgery charge does not relate to artwork of any description. UK customs officials have impounded two trunkloads of forged Iraqi antiquities, writes Martin Bailey. The 190 items represent a variety of objects, including clay tablets, figurines and animal-shaped pots. The trunks were dispatched from Bahrain and opened at Heathrow Airport on the 1st of July last year, after they caught the eye of an inquisitive Border Force officer. Originally suspected of being looted antiquities, they were handed over to the British Museum for examination. The British Museum curator Sinjin Simpson believes that the consignment was probably intended for an individual collector in the UK, rather than for dispersal via the internet. He says that the international market is now absolutely awash with forgeries of differing qualities, and there are far more fakes than genuine Middle Eastern antiquities on sale. And finally, mail art, that's art sent in the mail, not art made by men, is experiencing a renaissance in the States amid the coronavirus crisis, just as the US Postal Service struggles to survive, Brian Leahy writes. The New York-based non-profit Printed Matter is using the Postal Service as a means to engage with the public via an open call for mail art submissions. Meanwhile, Dream Farm Commons, an artist-run exhibition space in Oakland, California, has put out its own call for mail art, asking communities to send submissions, whether by post or dropped in the gallery's letterbox, which will be displayed in the gallery's storefront windows and included in a digital catalogue. The US Postal Service has become a target of the Trump administration as it looks to cut federal costs, so the act of mailing art in a crisis has acquired a political currency in keeping with the radical tradition of this niche medium. You can read all these stories and more at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. As collectors and art lovers increasingly look to browse and purchase online, Christie's continues to expand its online-only auction calendar, with new sale offerings dedicated to 20th century art. Open for bidding, Christie's first open sale includes Carrie Mae Weems's Change Requires 2020 Vision, with proceeds to benefit the Centre for Refugee Services and House of Trees, and a photographic survey from Pictorialism into Modernism, 80 Years of Photography. The refresh schedule complements Christie's private sales. Bid and buy art at any time and from anywhere. 
Find out more on christies.com. Welcome back. Now for the latest in our series, Lonely Works, where we look at art in museums closed because of the coronavirus. This week, the painter Ian Davenport has chosen Nude in the Bath, a painting made in 1936 by Pierre Bonnard. The work is in Paris, in the Musée d'Art Moderne de la Vie de Paris, and is one of the great series of paintings made by Bonnard, which picture his wife Marthe bathing. In a great essay for the Tate Gallery's Bonnard retrospective of 1998, the curator Sarah Whitfield wrote that Mart was likely to have been suffering from a lingering form of tuberculosis and spent many hours in the bath, probably following medical advice in an age where hydrotherapy was a popular treatment for a range of conditions. So Bonnard's bath paintings are among his most melancholy, but also, in their colours, among the most radiant and serene. Davenport has recently made a group of works inspired by Bonnard's painting, which will be available in the first of a series of online exhibitions called New Work on Waddington Cousteau's website. He joined me on the line from his London studio to tell me about his preoccupation with this work by the French master. You can see an image of the picture as we discuss it at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the podcast link on the homepage and look for this episode. Ian, you have just made a body of work specifically about this painting by Bonnard called Nude in the Bath, one of the nudes in the bath, this one from 1936. What was it about that painting? Where did you see it? Um, I saw it at the Tate exhibition last year and, um, you know, was really struck by certain aspects of it, but it has a luminosity um, and sort of flickering quality to the paint I particularly liked. And I've become increasingly interested in other artists' paintings as a source of um, a colour reference for my own work. And Bonnard's particularly wonderful person to use because he uses such a variety of colours and has such a some mixed palette and is such a wonderful colourist. So he's a great person to look at. And I went a few times and uh, I know somebody from the Tate and I was asking them, would it be possible to get a really high-res um, you know, version of the painting and go and actually photograph it in quite... Um, quite some detail you know and we wanted to set up a camera and get loads of close-ups and stuff like that and, and so we managed to get permission to go in one day really early in the morning which was great so we were able to wander around without the the crowds and and really just enjoy it it's a marvelous exhibition um i went once with my mum as well it was hysterical because she loves paintings and we we kind of spent about an hour and a half and we got to room number three she really likes to look at every painting. I was going, Mum, there's 15 rooms, you know, we're going to have to move on a bit more <laughs> quickly. But it's a particularly special painting, that one. And I just kind of had a sense that it would be a really good trigger for me to work from. It's really interesting you say about recording the picture in high res because one of the things about Bonnard, and I've got, I've been looking at catalogues ahead of this conversation, is that his work re- reproduce. It's so difficult to get those colours, those those shimmering, flickering, beautiful colours in the pictures in reproduction. So, so it, it's, it, I imagine it was absolutely paramount when you came to make a work based on it that you had to somehow get a really sharp idea of what those colours are in the picture. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because some museums for example the National Gallery have a lot of their collection um, online and you can go and look at the paintings in incredibly high detail it's amazing you know if you um, and uh, you know which is a fantastic resource because this is a, a paying exhibition I don't think you know it's possible to do that we had we did have a look and also I looked at several books of that particular painting as well and I was struck by the difference in the reproduction and you know between them they, it was almost like there were several different paintings so we really wanted to get something accurate ourselves and I mean you know it's not necessarily 
about replicating every color accurately. It's more about a sense of how the painting works and about how different color groups work next to each other. In the back of the painting, there's sort of four different sections of colors. And, you know, I was really struck by the way that those particularly are worked into the painting and orchestrated. And then there's beautiful turquoise tiles. Uh, I mean, it's just a really, really wonderful thing. And, you know, I started working on it. And whenever I make, make a painting in this way, you're never quite sure what's going to happen. You just kind of follow your nose. And, um, but, it, it, you know, I made a number of smaller studies uh, from it. And um, some of them are at Waddington Cousteau Galleries uh, on their online display in the next sort of few weeks. And, um, and then I've been sort of able to put those together to compose bigger paintings. And, um, you know, that's kind of working on what I'm working on at the moment, really. With with Bonnar, one of the great delights for me is is that that ability to when when you move up close to the surface to see the kind of accidents in the work, you know that there there is um, this accretion of layer upon layer and and wet into wet sometimes sometimes wet onto dry where you get these delightful accidents these collisions of colours and it seems to me that that really that's perfect in a way for for the kind of systems that you're using where at the bottom yes you you talked about the choice of colours initially but then there is this pooling this paddling and that's where the happy accidents occur right yeah I think so and also I think there's I mean you know absolutely there's I mean he's a magical painter and there's so many different uh, sort of depths to the paintings I mean that the um the sort of chance like Mark's that occur, you know, and, and the variety of mark making is, is really special. I think also the, there's something about the way that he was using identifiable um, figures or landscapes, but then allowing his imagination to really go wild with the colour um, is also really, really exciting. So, um, you know, I was really struck by that. I mean, I wasn't so, totally crazy about Bonnard's paintings. Um, I mean, as a, as a student or a young artist, and then I went to see a show that the Tate did in the 90s. And there was one painting of a, um, of a I think it's an, al- it's an uh, almond blossom. And um, it's almost done right at the very end of his life. And I was just so struck by it. I thought it was incredibly moving. It was so direct. And he painted it with his fingers, I believe. And um, I just found it, I mean, it just it really struck, you know, a chord with me. And um, I think it also made me, I think it was a point when I was just starting to think about how I might make paintings which incorporated colour, um, you know, in a much more complex way. So it was just a bit of a sort of masterclass, really, in how you put colour together. And, you know, I think the point is to be, I mean, what I like about it is that he obviously really enjoys it. It's, it's playful, but it's also very thoughtful as well. So um, it's very hard to predict how colour really works. You know, you can't sort of scientifically analyse it. Um, and for me, it's a, it's a very enjoyable thing looking at colour. It's, it's sort of like um, having a meal in a way. Um, you know, it's a really sensual thing. So I, I, I feel like I get all of that from, from his paintings. It's really interesting because it, it, you're, that you're right about that wonderful almond blossom painting for the end of his life. It's a sort of extraordinarily fragile image. It's a sort of tragic image, but it's also a hopeful image. And that to me is what I find so consistently absorbing about Bonnard is this sort of ambiguity of emotion. When you see, I mean, when you think about this nude in a bath, his wife was ill for most of her life. Uh, he was witnessing her in, uh, experiencing hydrotherapy by all accounts, you know, um, and so she would ritually be in the bath. And, and so this was a sort of... Um, an event in their lives which was marked with the difficulty of illness and yet these paintings are still serene and 
and the colours are utterly joyous on occasion. So it's a sort of curious conflict of stuff in Bono, isn't there? Yeah, and it's it seems very appropriate at the moment, you know, that they're very they're, they feel very positive. I mean, maybe it was his way of coping with, you know, what they were kind of having to go through, and he kind of went into this sort of almost fantasy of colour. Um, I don't know, but um, yeah, I, I agree. They are very, very positive. A lot of the paintings. I mean, there's some very um, sort of moving ones as well, which are not so much about colour, but some self-portraits, and um, which are, which are you know, very striking as well. And he's obviously very frustrated and um, saddened by um, his his wife, who is becoming very ill. Um, but there's a beautiful painting in the Tate as well, which was, I think it's called The Balcony, which was like um, painted towards the end of his life, which is just this sea of magentas and maroons. I mean, it's just like, you know, it's kind of almost like looking at a sunset or something. It's absolutely amazing, you know. So beautiful. They're really beautiful paintings and very, very moving as well. And I, I think there's a lot, I mean, what, it's kind of funny, actually, is what I was discovering with my mum as well was that we went and the more you look at one of these paintings, the more it reveals, you really could spend such a long time looking at each one. It's, they're real joyous things to behold. Absolutely. And this, this one, I find, in fact, the bath paintings in general, they're such absorbing pictures. And every time you see them, you see them again afresh. And with this picture, for me, it's that extraordinary balance i mean you know that that incredible golden yellow which bays marked his wife's head as she lies in the bath and then there's a there's this sort of incredible vivid yellow underneath the bath as well beneath her head and there's this that that sort of violet above her head and as you say these extraordinary turquoises the richness of the color is amazing isn't it it is it is and it, and it's um you know and your eye can't pin it down as well i think that's that, that's it's your eyes are sort of completely overwhelmed by what it sees so it's just trying to kind of process all this information and it's just on total overload and then there's a point where you kind of go right well I can't sort of look at it like that I just have to kind of let my eye just you know wander over the surface it's like trying to you know look at a sea or something where you can't pin down the, the, the movement it's that energetic it, it's it's um you know and I think once you kind of once you realize it's that sort of painting um you know, it's almost post-impressionistic in the way that, you know, it's the mark making and I'm sure he looked at a lot of post-impressionists and impressionists. Um, but yeah, I, and, I, and I really particularly like that, I guess, because in my works that it's very hard to pin down individual elements of them. You know, your eye does move across them. And, um, you know, I, I, th- I think maybe that's one of why he's one of the artists that I really like um, as, a, as a sort of a point of reference um, I mean, what I'm trying to do in, in these particular paintings is that the the background of the Bonnard had these four different colours, like a, I think they're a, a yellow, a grey, a blue and a purple. So I was also really interested in the fact that, um, for me, a ground colour almost acts like a, a kind of a musical key. So it's like, you know, this is in yellow is the C, you know, the key of C, uh, purple is the key of B or something like that, you know, and they really do set the tone for, for each of um, the way other colours sit on top of them and, and way other colours react. Um, and the paintings I'm making, I'm trying to put together a sequence of um, based on those four background colours and then sort of choreograph them together so that your eye isn't necessarily aware of that, but um, that will kind of hopefully make the point um, of the kind of kinship with this Bonnard painting and then also take it into a different place of, of its own.
Now, one of the things about Bonnard, which is which I've always loved, is that Bonnard was a source of dispute between Picasso and Matisse. And I'm just going to read because it's just such fun to do this. But um, <laughs> I'm just going to read from the Tate catalogue, the the part of the Tate catalogue, basically, where it included, you know, other voices talking about um about Bonnard. And I'm going to read a little bit from Matisse first and then from Picasso. And this is a sort of delightful kind of divergence in these two great artists' views of art. So I'm just going to read them out now. Uh, So this is Matisse. I've known him all my life, this rare and courageous painter, and as he used to say himself, he finds himself between Impressionism and Fauvism, for he didn't want to be assigned a role that he did not deserve. As far as I'm concerned, he made some works of the highest quality and that will endure Their intrinsic value will place them among the best things made after the heat of the battle will have died down. What's good is good. As far as I'm concerned, he's already to be accounted one of the greatest painters. And then this uh, this is Picasso. Don't talk to me about Bonnard. That's not painting, what he does. He never goes beyond his own sensibility. He doesn't know how to choose. When Bonnard paints a sky, perhaps he first paints it blue, more or less the way it looks. Then he looks a little longer and sees some mauve in it. So he has a touch or two of mauve, just to hedge. Then he decides that maybe it's a little pink too, so there's no reason not to add some pink. The result is a potpourri of indecision. <laughs> so I just thought, you know, and, and there's this wonderful, you know, two of the greatest, but actually in, in you know, to... In Picasso, fairness to Picasso, he then goes on to say that Matisse is not like this and defends Matisse and says that Matisse uses colour in an intellectual way. But it's really interesting to me, apart from anything else, in that I think Picasso just didn't have any doubt. There was no doubt and he knew he was one of the greatest painters that ever lived and he just set about paint, making his paintings with utterly, with with total confidence. Whereas I think Matisse was a, an artist who was utterly wracked with anxiety, just the same as I think Bonnard was in a similar way. And I think somehow, actually, there's a big distinction between those artists in that sense of doubt that that somehow underlines those works, as opposed to Picasso's almost sort of cocksure, sometimes too cocksure kind of approach to his, to his painting. Yeah, I, mean, I think, I mean, that's it's really interesting to hear those um, two kind of different sort of summaries of, of, of their, their reactions to his work, isn't it? And um, I mean, Matisse and Bonnard, I think both lived in the south of France and, you know, uh, had regular conversations and meetings. And obviously both were really drawn towards colour as a major theme. And I think, um, you know, that is one of the reasons why um, Matisse is so important to a lot of artists and, and Bonnard, but but especially Matisse, I think, because people have used have, have really loved the way that he used colour and um, really responded to his paintings. I think the thing about Picasso is like he is just unbelievably amazing. Um, it's very hard to do anything, take anything from Picasso and and sort of run with it and do anything better. And people have tried and generally it, it's, it just doesn't feel as good or as strong. Whereas with Matisse, it's something that you can really take and, you know, and that's what's happened. I mean, artists have, you know, done that subsequently, people like Rothko and Barnett Newman and, and so on. And lots of artists who, um, you know, have used colour in a, in a very different ways because of um, Matisse, but also because of Bonnard, I believe. So I think the, um, you know, and I kind of get the, the idea about, Bonnard's paintings being fussy um, and I used to that used to kind of irritate me slightly to begin with as well you know and I didn't really get into them until I was as I say sort of maybe in my mid-20s and early 30s and then I just I think I, it was that Blossom painting it was just a bit of a trigger for me you know it was just a bit of a turning point I kind of I, it felt very moving 
and I start to kind of give him a lot more benefit of the doubt. Ian, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Really nice to catch up with you and take care, Ben. Ian Davenport's four Bonnard-inspired paintings for Waddington Cousteau's online exhibition New Work will be live at waddingtoncousteau.com from the 26th of May. And that's it for this week. Please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook, Instagram and Telegram. You can find the Telegram invite code at the top of our newsletters, which you can sign up for at theartnewspaper.com. The producers of The Week in Art are Julia Michalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David's also the editor. Thanks to Marina, to Catherine and to Ian, and thank you for listening. See you next week. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.